Hello, and uh, welcome to the Cycling Central podcast. I'm Philip Gomes, and with me are Rob Arnold, editor of Ride Cycling Review, and uh, frequent Cycling Central contributor, Jamie Finch-Penninger. Well, we're here to uh, talk about uh, Tour de France, uh, World Championships, and uh, maybe T-U-E-S-D-A-Y, Tuesday, T-U-E Tuesday. Um, Although we sort of agreed last week that we would just ignore that. Yeah, but we're going we're gonna to touch on it because it seems to be ongoing anyway. So yeah, It's never going to go. Uh, that's Rob Arnold, by the way. What's oh, yeah. up? Uh, no, life's up. No, um, what's up? Plenty of things. Had some interesting discussions this morning and it may well come to be that I'll publish something online about it later today. Ooh, sounds juicy. Or I could just stop getting angry and just enjoy riding my bike just there is that there are always two options well mm. at least two mm. so ignore the fruit no ignore the bad wallpaper and consider the fruit i wrote a, a, a blog that uh, ended that way last week yes more and more these days i'm opting for the i'll just uh, sit in the corner in a lotus position rather than jump in well, I mean, frustration can serve you well or it can send you off on a tangent that just wastes time. Yeah, I just go straight to my happy place. Yeah, happy place is yeah, good. That's yeah, that's right. Jamie, um, in Australia for the last, uh, for the last week, there's been, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about avocado, particularly smashed avocado. It's become a point of, like a cultural touch point over whether, whether millennials spend too much money on avocado, smashed avocado dishes and it's preventing them from buying property. Now, as as the sole representative of your generation, what's your take on this? Well, um, in my experience, uh, I do like avocado and I don't own a house, so I can confirm that it is in fact the case. Um, buying <laughs> smashed avocado does um, decrease your likelihood of owning a house. I think. That's I, right. I so, think that's confirmed now. Yeah, yep, yep. Can I sort of just contribute that I've been in discussion with people who've been involved for cycling their entire life and there's three of us, I, I put myself in that category, there's three of us who all sort of want to branch out and become avocado farmers. But that was, we, we decided that years ago, before smashed avocado became du jour. And, and, and really, you know, my generation, we, we knew smashed avocado as just guacamole. So what the hell? Yeah. I, I See, I grew up in Coffs Harbour, so we used to just drive up and just pick up avocados on the side of the road. But that was back then. That was back in the 70s, man. You couldn't do that today. No way. No, no. It's like gold on the streets, you it's know. green it's gold. Like, yeah, 20, $25 on avocado. I mean, it's so, unbelievable. So delicious. That's right. Mm. Well, Smash I'm, it and eat it. I do feel it what you want. <laughs> I do feel sorry for your generation, though. It's going to be very difficult to uh, progress. Oh, I've, I've um, discounted the... Um, probability of buying a house, you know, before I'm 50 or something. I mean, I don't, I don't see it as a, as a viable investment at, at this stage of my life. I mean, you know, I'll just rent and work, work things out from there. I mean, be more, be a bit more mobile, get out in the world, maybe go overseas. Yeah, travel the world, yeah. write about cycling. Yeah, yeah. Live out of a backpack. Um, well, so glamorous. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have slept in my car before. Um, whilst covering cycling, so it's not, not something that's entirely glamorous, uh, as you alluded to there, but yeah. <laughs> Should okay. we talk about stuff? Yes, let's talk about, uh, we'll talk about cycling in just one minute. Okay, let's start with the UCI Road World Championships in Doha, Qatar, and I suppose we're going to talk about the women's and men's road races. 
both of which were interesting in their own way and, and were kind of raced, raced differently because of the conditions, um, which was also interesting, with the men's race turning out to be boring, then explosive, and then kind of boring and then explosive at the end. So It's the Thursday after the Sunday before, and I've pretty much <laughs> forgotten about it. I, I didn't. It didn't have a big impact on my life. And normally, and, and th- that's the that's an anomaly because usually I am still buzzing. Yeah. And it's not to say that I found it completely ignorable. It, you know, I was there, lying on the lounge, but I didn't even pick up my phone and offer a tweet. Oh, that's just. It's just lazy. lazy. I was just enjoying it, just yeah, watching, yeah, yeah. absorbing. I, th- I think that's a reaction a lot of people have had to the Doha yeah. worlds. Um, it didn't really grab the attention of people because there was. No crowd, no atmosphere. I mean, Richmond last year had a very distinct atmosphere with people lining the roads and you had those climbs, which um, really gave the race a bit of character with the cobbles and the short, punchy nature of them. Um, With the Doha worlds, I mean, sand and wind were the defining factors of, of the Qatari race and it just didn't really pique the interest of the general public at large and I think that's been a missed opportunity by the UCI in hosting uh, an event over there because I, I don't think anyone would have, um, as a neutral, would have watched that would have watched that series of events and gone, yes, I'm going to become a cycling fan now. I think mm. it's I mean, yeah, they, a bit of a no-goal. It, that's interesting ideas that the wind was such a factor. We knew that it would be. And, and in men's race, the elite men's race, it showed, proved to be the case because it was an out-and-back course where most of the others were contested on the streets of Doha. Of Doha, yeah. Doha. And... Um, so it got me thinking, and we can go on a few tangents here, so stop me if I ramble on, but here's the concepts. First of all, wind is part of cycling and it always has been. It's just how it is. There's always echelons and, and stuff to deal with. And that makes racing very interesting. And, uh, and, and that's all well and good. And I, I started thinking, yeah, actually, we didn't need a hill. We didn't need a climb. We needed The, the wind actually created the race and it, and it generated some buzz and it was exciting. But all year, because of accidents that have happened in the peloton, we've been talking about the duty of care that the UCI has. And so we don't want motorbikes running into bike riders. We don't want excess traffic on the roads in bike races. We don't want things that are potentially dangerous. Now, wind is part of nature and it can be there just like a hill, I guess, only that it's a little bit less uh, tangible. It can come or it can go. And so there was someone who made the comment during the world's coverage that wind is part of cycling and that the riders had to deal with it. And then on the Monday after, I got a call from Paul Craig, who has a strong relationship with cycling and a strong relationship with wind, and I referenced him last week. He got blown off the road and he doesn't ride a bike anymore because he's uh, a paraplegic because of wind and cycling. And the two can come together and create a hazardous situation. Mayhem, yeah. In other words, uh, to replace... The hills of Richmond with the wind of Doha is, in essence, something that is potentially a, a, an interesting initiative for it makes cycling that complete... Uh, we get to see the full warrior, so to speak. But what would have happened if we saw another Paul Craig incident come from the World Championships? They, as I said, I can go on a tangent, I can keep talking, but I'll just... No, look, it's a, it's, it's a, fair, it's a fair cop. And, and look, we've, we, have, we also had this discussion around the... the uh, Olympic road race, right? And there was some key crashes, <clears throat> et cetera, and then people are talking about the safety of the course. <clears throat> but again, the way I look at it is this, is that these courses are designed a certain way. The riders have to adapt to the course. And <clears throat> quite simply, if you're going to have to peg it back a little bit and not blast down that hill, that dangerous hill with a 
90 degree hairpin turn, well, that's part of racing and that's what you're going to do. You're going to touch your brakes and maybe the next guy, the guy next to you or the girl next to you is not going to do that. And In other words, a hill is a manageable obstacle. But the wind... The wind is not. You can't this, just say, okay, this, I've had enough of the wind, I'm just going to... This is true. Go, Jamie. Yeah, um, I, w- I would say that in both of the cases, I mean, the heat was the other issue with the Doha Worlds and the heat and the wind, they are both things that you can adapt to and you can um, take into consideration. I think where the safety and duty of care concern really comes into play is with the things that can't be prepared for, so like traffic obstacles which aren't properly signposted and um, rider vehicle uh, vehicles, um, tiered vehicles and neutral spares, that sort of thing, crashing into riders, those things that are well outside the, the rider's element of control. Sure, if there's dangerous circumstances like gale force winds, like, for instance... Kent Vagel again um, two years ago was you know gale force conditions and I personally don't think they should have raced that race because we saw riders you know being blown off the road I remember Garrett Thomas being blown into a ditch um, but those things are something that a cyclist you know it's part of their job to manage it is my opinion um, I, I know it's a I know it's a vexed issue if obviously. you're sitting in a wheelchair mm. ten years on. Hmm. After an accident, there's, I mean, okay, but there's, but yeah, there's, I mean, that's not to say that Paul Craig needs to alter the whole no. the whole uh, narrative, narrative of, of cycling. Yes, that's no, right. that, that's not. It, but it's it, we have to take it into consideration. It happened because of wind in Southland ten years ago. Yes, yes, and you know that when when a motorbike runs into the bike riders, we we ask that mo- the motorbike riders take more care. So if the the organisers put the race on a super windy course. I mean, I don't think it was that windy on Sunday that it was sort of hazardous to the no, point no, of I, being... No, no, we've seen, we've seen that kind of wind in, the, say, in Belgium in, in March. And we don't need to doctor rules and regulations. We just have to be a little bit... I mean, people were saying, oh, it's going to be a wet Roubaix, this is going to be exciting. In other words, oh, there's going to be carnage. Then we saw Mitch Docker go down and smash his face up and, and we were like, oh, my God, that, that was carnage. Isn't that terrible? Hmm. So do you have one or the other? And, and and at what point do the bike riders become stop being athletes and become gladiators? Yep. Uh, it's a question, but I don't have that. You but know. here we are, and, and this is the problem this is the problem with Doha in particular, is here we are a few days afterwards and we're still talking about the conditions of the race rather than the racing itself. So just just to give you a refresh, yep. Emily uh, Dietrichson um, won the women's road race, Kirsten Wielt uh, was second and Lotta Lapista was third. Uh, the men's race was won. Say that third third place again. Uh-huh. It's so cool. Pista. What a great name! Yeah, yeah I'm moving to great. Finland. Moving, they got great names, actually. Really? It's true. No, yeah. I don't mind the guys from the Icelandic names as well. Yusi, you know, Yusi Vaikanen. Uh, yeah, That's so good. cool. Imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah, my my son is Yusi. Um, for example, where was I? Oh yeah, the, <laughs> the men's uh, the, the men's road race <laughs> was won again uh, by uh, Peter Sagan for the second year in a row, which was. Pretty amazing, and I think that's only the. I think that was the sixth time in history that that uh, we've had a champion repeat at the Worlds, and he did that ahead of Mark Cavendish and Tom Boonen, and what was really a podium where we would have been happy with either three of either one mm. of those guys winning, because it was a great podium. I was kind of I would have I was into the fairy tale Boonen story myself. I wanted fourth place to win. Well, yes, Michael Matthews, yes, of course. <laughs> and Australia's Michael Matthews finished fourth in the men's road race, and we should point out that uh, that Chloe Hosking from Australia finished uh, sixth in the women's race as well. Mm. Um, 
pretty much to form. I mean, you know, people were saying with the women's race, for example, that uh, that, that was an upset. But she well, she has it quality. Was, it was an upset. I mean, that's that's not mince words. There. That was a massive upset. She's only won one race of note on the season in the Bowls Rentals Tour, um, mm-hmm. Emily Diedrichsen, and she's 20 years old and she's essentially renowned as a domestic for Bowls Dormans. Uh, but let's look but she, back. But, but she is, but she is, oh, no, she is, years, she, is yeah. <laughs> she is an incredible rider. I mean, don't get me wrong. And she, she has won. But it was it was a big upset beating Kirsten Vild, um and the other big sprinters who were on the... Emily Collins is a Kiwi who had an accident. She stopped being a bike rider, but she has been this year. She wrote to me about Emily and she was just saying that she's just a formidable force and she's been given the role as domestique this year. But obviously when she gets the chance to race in Danish colours, she comes out and absolutely blitzes the field. She did that twice in a row in the juniors, winning two road races in succession at the World Championships. Championships, that's right. So she's obviously got pedigree and she hasn't... And now she had an opportunity in Doha to show herself and, and didn't she do that? Like, I think... If you look at Kristen Wilde on the bike, she's a f- formidable force. If you come off that wheel, I think you're doing pretty well. Yep. Uh, she goes very fast. But it, it, but Amelie, the winner, had that advantage of being able to come off that wheel. And uh, in other words, there's quite a slipstream to come from. Yeah. I, th- I think that's part of the discussion as well. Where was Chloe Hosting's lead out in the final there? I mean, she was left to, left to fend for herself and she started a sprint in, I don't know, eighth or ninth wheel and finished seventh, I think, in the end. Sixth. Okay, um, and it was, yeah, it was a bit of a, a missed opportunity. I think um, it looked like her lead out, and she were riding different races in the end. There, who was there for her in the final? There, I saw with about eight k's to go, um, Lauren Kitchen and Catherine Garfoot arrived on the front without um, Chloe in tow, and hmm. then, it, then I don't know what happened after that. But um, Chloe Hosking ended up on the front by herself. Yeah, the way mm. I, the way I read it is that they 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 were on one side of the road and Chloe was on the other side of the road. So, yeah, these things happen. They but, do. Yeah. I well, mean, even you watch Cavendish's positioning, and and he's it's been referenced often that he's thought he 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 lost at the race. No, what did he say? He lost instead of winning silver or something. Yeah. Like yes, that. Well, that's he right. Did. Yeah, you yeah, know, that, yeah. He did both. And and but it was because of. He got boxed in. These things happen in a sprint. You can have the best legs. You can have the best lead out. You can be in a good situation. Then all of a sudden someone decides to turn left or right or just peel. Well, if we're on to discussing the men's <laughs> sprint now, um, yeah, I mean, Cavendish could have followed Adam Blythe, who did a pretty good lead out for him um, mm. coming into the – and would have probably let him off um, in the top three or four Riders with three, 300 metres, 250 metres to go. And, and it's exaggerated been. when you see Adam looking around going, come on, where, where are you? Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 to be, and to be fair to Calf too, I mean, he didn't, he didn't note that. Mm. I, think I read somewhere that you know, he said that was an error on his part more than anything else. It's just mm. he, he thought that Blythe had done the work. Uh, for him, so well at least he got a lead out. Unlike mm. Alexander Kristoff, who was not happy at Edvald Bosenhagen after the race, um, Edvald appeared to be sprinting for himself, and <laughs> Alexander Kristoff was like, "Well, where's where's my lead out? I mean, I'm the I'm the I'm the nominated sprinter here. I mean, come on, come on, Edvald." And yeah, I think he's got every right to be kind and of kind these of annoyed. Things happen, and it's the Germans, so- the Germans. I mean, they they had a bit of was a bit of a mess for them as well, missing a break. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, they didn't miss the break. Degen Kolb was in there, and then he um, had, a mecha- had a mechanical mm-hmm. to go out. I think he got a puncture. Um, yeah, I just think you know, like if you tune in, 
like I could say, yeah, okay, I'll be honest. I tuned in with about 30k to go. Well, you so, missed, you and missed then the interesting the stuff. Then. No, yeah. no, no. I went back. I, well, the beauty of it is that it's the World Championships. In other words, you can see the whole race again and you can scroll through the highlights. I did tape it, you know, I do what I did. Tape? Know, record. I, in the olden days, you used to put it on a VHS kids, Google it. Um, but uh, <laughs> so I have seen the other bits in pieces out in the wind. That's why I try to talk about it. But um, uh, uh, what was the point? Oh, yeah, I want to just do a quick shout out to Jesper, Jesper Staven because he was formidable. I don't know how long he was at the front, but he was certainly giving them some stick. And in that sort of, I guess, leading up to that final 10K, that was where there was the potential to to, you know, uh, to scamper clear and like uh, we saw Tom Leeser try and do. Uh, uh, but it didn't. Didn't work out. But I think that the Belgians were just outstanding in the way that they managed it. And it was pretty impressive for Boonen to get in the medals considering um, who he was up against. I think the Belgians were pretty dumb about how they raced it, actually. I mean, they did a great job at 170Ks to split the race up, but they had six guys in the the, um, winning move that went of 25 riders or so. And then they just did nothing. They decided, okay, Tom Boonen, he's going to out-sprint Mark Cavendish, Peter Sagan, Michael Matthews, um, Edvel Bosenhagen, Alexander Kristoff, uh, Viviani Nizzolo. Most of what? those that you referenced yeah. he did beat. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, so, but, then, but going yeah. into that finish there, I mean, why would you back um, Boonen, who, you know, his, his great sprinting days are behind him, let's, let's be entirely honest about that. Why would you back him over, you know, making some attacks saying, Greg Van Avermaet? You know, you go free in, you know, the last 20Ks or so. Um, Jens Kukulier, Jasper Stoyven, why not make it a different race where the numbers do in fact matter rather than just keeping it together until until the sprint there? Mm, that's interesting. No, no, I, think that's a fair, I think that's a fair point. Um, and well, that, I don't, I'm not angry about it. No, no, I don't think any of us are. It's just sport. Oh, no, no, yeah. I mean, this is what I enjoy about <laughs> cycling, the, the tactical discussion about yeah, yeah. afterwards no, I agree. And, and, I agree. and breaking down um, what, what you would have done in the race, what should be done. So, yeah. And before, before we leave this topic, um, obviously we want to talk a little bit about Peter Sagan. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, yeah, he won it. Yeah. And he won it with, like... It was it basically once you saw that him come up the right hand side of the road, yeah, he's right, yeah, yeah. Um, then you just knew, oh, of course, he's he's just so strong. It's unreal. He's just amazing, and yeah, I no think. team to speak of. Well, no, no. Well, no, no. Collar did a good Cola. job. No, Collar did yeah. do a good job, but yeah. I mean, it, it's not like you know he's he's stacked and he's got like six guys. Not at all. Uh, you know, it, 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 but the guys that he did have did a, were pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like and 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 it was so nice to see Collar and and uh, oh, what's Peter's brother's name? Urash. Urash yeah. yep. come along at the when the interviews are being done and give their little two cents worth and just it, I think a lot of people have got a lot of um, admiration for Sagan, but also a little bit of a soft spot for Slovakian cycling. Oh, I think we do now. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of neat, actually. You know, little country that could. Choo choo. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we will uh, we will go on to uh, talking about the Tour de France. Well, on uh, Tuesday night, the 2017 Tour de France route was unveiled in Paris, and uh, some interesting possibilities for the race. Um, it's a bit light on massive mountain climbs, and really, as far as uh, Christian Prudhomme, the race organizer uh, said, it's encouraged. It's designed to encourage uh, aggressive attacking 
racing. Uh, approximately 3,516 kilometers. It starts in Dusseldorf in Germany, which we all know, on July 1st. And that's with a short time trial. There are only five real mountain stages, or what we kind of classify or think as a real mountain stage. Um, fewer than 2016, but lots of opportunities for sprinters and punchers. I noticed that uh, Marc Sajan with um, Lotto, uh, Lotto um, Sudal was talking about the opportunities for guys like uh, Andre Greipel. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're very encouraged, and I know Cav was as well. So it's looking like a good race for, for them, for sprinters as well. Mm -hmm. uh, notable stages, the penultimate day's time trial, which is going to start in the Marseille Velodrome football stadium. <laughs> and it's uh, going to be about 23 kilometers long. And there's also a little punchy climb that's going to reach about 18%, which is going to be pretty interesting. And then on paper, the toughest stage is the Pyrenean one from Po to Perigudes and has a summit finish. And then, of course, the one we're all think we're kind of looking forward to, which is the um, the 100 kilometer mountain stage to Foix. Which Foix? 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 You're your French speaker. Yeah, so no, Foix? No, no, yeah. no. And uh, and that's the one that the uh, the women are also going to ride, and that's also the one that. Uh, oh, to Iswar. Oh, sorry, Iswar. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, um, in the Alps, that, not the Pyrenees. That's right, the Alps, yeah. yeah. And it's also the one that the uh, ASO has chosen for their La Tape as well. Pretty exciting. Yeah, it's going to be a big day in the mountains. So just, uh, just to jump in, I don't know if the homework or the housekeeping was done, but this is our last podcast of the year, which is why we're talking about the Tour de France in October. Mm -hmm. And also because the, the launch was only two days ago. That's right, which we stream live on yeah. Cycling Central website. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that that's... It seems odd in October to be talking about the tour, but it's totally relevant because we now know where we're go where the race is going. That's right. Book say, your hotels now. Yeah, I say where we're going because it's just force of habit. But yeah, yeah, make a holiday. So should be a good route. Uh, what my first observation? <laughs> I made quite a few. I wrote my story yesterday, and I was quite pleased with actually finishing it. Uh, but that's for the magazine. Anyway, the 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 the. the there used to be this concept of it goes clockwise and then anti-clockwise. Well, it hasn't done that the last couple of years. It's gone anti-clockwise and anti-clockwise. So the reversal of that tradition is gone. But even this year, it's not one or the other. It's more like a zigzag, if you know what I mean. So you start up north and then you come down and then you go west and then you come back east and then you go west again with a big transfer and then you come back east and then you go south and then there's a God almighty transfer on the on the night of the final Saturday back to Paris from Marseille, if you don't mind. So probably about as far from Paris as you can get in France. Um, so that was interesting just in itself, the zigzag tour for what it's worth. But I think it's a, I think it's really crafty, interesting, uh, innovation, innovative course. Yeah, and going through all the five mountain ranges in France. Um, the Bosch. Oh, we're going to name them all, the Jura, the Massif Central, the Pyrenees and the Alps are the other ones. So, yeah, there we go. We've got all five. Um, and that, that gives it a different flavour. And it, I think it, space, it spaces out the race differently. I mean, normally the third third week and end of the second week are the decisive moments mm. of the of a Grand Tour. Um, but this one is a lot more spaced out. So you've got like La Punche de Belfi um, on early, I think it's fifth stage in the race. And then you've got a number of other race, um, number of other climbs, big, well, big climbing stages spaced evenly throughout the race. So it'll be interesting mm. to see how that affects the general classification when you've got guys like Quintana, for instance, who's renowned as being a third week specialist, essentially. Mm. Um, coming into the race, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Remember, in the olden days, they used to talk about trying to make the course for someone in particular. My feeling is that it's really, you know, Bardet was second, 
there's there's guys like him from Roman Bardet who came second this year, uh, and the course suits his strengths. And and to have uh, such little time trialing, to be honest, there are two time trials, but they're not very long. And uh, then it means that we're looking for another course for the climbers, which has been pretty much the theme of every course unveiling for the last 15 years. Here we are for a course for the climbers, except for the 2012 tour perhaps, which had that conclusion in, in Chartres for Wigo. But um, anyway, uh, then I had a visit yesterday from Ray English, who's a man who's seen many, many, many tours uh, over the years and he's got a great mind for stats and I think he was saying it was 1963, which the last time a ruler won the tour, which was Jan Janssen. And uh, so I, I think those days of, of, of a ruler winning, a Greg Van Avermaet-style rider, long gone, that's not going to happen. So we could pretty much say that every tour is for the climbers, couldn't we? Yes. What's interesting to me about the tour, though, is that, um, and I think I'm, I, I was listening to Froome, or not Froome, it was Nicholas Portal, uh, on the Team Sky website, was talking about their view, their initial view of the site, of the of the of the route. And one thing is pretty obvious is that it's going to keep the GC race together a little bit more because there are fewer really big mountain climbs. Froome said after that uh, there there there's fewer opportunities. Like you can't really wait for the next day. Those don't exist because the climbs are too small, exactly. etc. So that should keep the GC battle nice and tight. Yeah while at the same time encouraging some attacking from guys like Quintana, et cetera. I still can't see anyone, though, on that penultimate day and that 20, even though the time trial is short, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty hard to beat Froome. It's, but it's going to be closer mm -hmm. to that point, in theory, than, than traditionally, than, than most races with a much longer time trial. I wonder if then how much the racing in one edition affects the course for the next. You know, like it, we saw Froome effectively win the Tour in Stage 8 when he did his downhill attack to Luchon this year. And then stage nine, which they're calling the Queen stage, even though it finishes in Chambry, which is not at the top of the mountain. It finishes at bottom after the Monchat. And uh, so that they're calling that the Queen stage. So have they designed it such that, that, that there is, instead of that, uh, the risk of putting everything into the, the closing stages, like the, the double ascent of Alpha Duez a couple of years ago, for example. Uh, are they Instead of doing that where the, there was the risk that everyone would just marked each other, marked each other, marked each other all the way through that final Saturday and then have a crack, are they now just saying, just go for it, just go for it every day? Um, I don't know. It's it's question. And, 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 and I don't have the answer. And Prudhomme referenced that uh, prior to, the, uh, prior to the, the route unveiling, which was that he wanted to prevent the race from being stifled in any way, shut down, which we know Sky does. Um, and maybe if there, you know, in the future when there's another team as powerful as Sky, if there's ever another team as powerful as Sky, this is, he just doesn't want that kind of writing. Mm. So, yeah, I think, I think he's, on paper, I think he's achieved that. But it'll be interesting because Froome last year, or this year, sorry, proved that he's become much more of a complete rider. He looked like he can cover just about anything. And in fact, he kind of made the race for me because mm. he was interesting mm. this year in mm. a way that he hasn't been in the past. Um, so it's quite possible that he'll be able to cover anything in this race as well and still do the business in a time trial and just basically bury everyone on the, la the day before Champs-Élysées. Yeah, I think this notion that you can design a course which, isn't, um, which is going to stop Chris Froome is a bit of a misnomer. It's 
he's an incredibly good bike rider and mm. he can adapt himself to a lot of situations. And I'm not just, saying yeah. so much stop Chris Froome, rather favour well, other people. Well, even then, I mean, Roman Bardet, he wasn't happy with 36 kilometres of time trolling. He would have preferred <laughs> he'd have preferred none. none. So yeah. you know, I mean, right. maybe maybe one for a prologue or something. But he was he wasn't happy with 36 kilometres because um, he'll lose somewhere between two and three minutes over that 36 to to Froome. So right. it'll be. Uh, yeah, he he should be suited by the more attacking stages because obviously he's he did a great ride um, to attack and move himself up into second, and he he should be more suited to those stages where the climbs come quite a bit out from the finish. And it's interesting because there's quite a few of those um, quite a few of those stages in this edition of the tour. There aren't so many um, summit finishes. I think there's only four, mm. and it will favour those riders who are prepared to, you know, take the race on a bit and um, make some attacks, as you guys have alluded to. Well, they've called it a steep tour. In other words, that the climbs, may, they're not, might, be, might, might be that many climbs, but the ones that are there have a real real serious punch. Like La Planche de Belfield is a great example. Pierre Gould is another one. They are steep finishes. So I think that we could begin the chant. It's October, but let's start it. Yes, da, bam. Yes, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to see. I think Orica Green Edge came out overnight and stated the obvious is that goodbye sprinters, we're going GC. We're going to hit it hard with the Yates boys and with Esteban Chavez and with good reason. This is, you know, okay, there, there is a bit of time trialling but not too much and it's definitely if, if uh, Esteban Chavez was going to come out and do better than his two podiums in two Grand Tours this year, then he could come out and really... Vive, you know, take on Narican Town, take on Chris Froome, take on those guys and have a crack at, at the tour title. Why not? Yes. And I, w- I would argue that, uh, that the way Esteban finished off um, 2016, that he shows he may be just a slightly punchier rider than that, than that cohort. Mm. Would suit him well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's backing himself. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll finish the, uh, the TDF discussion there. I mean, obviously, we've got a lot to discuss uh, over the next few months about the TDF. And obviously, teams haven't decided who the appointment will be, and there are three Grand Tours, the Giro, the Vuelta, which does affect um, uh, some thinking on, on the tour and the kinds of teams that, uh, that they put together, the teams put together for this, for this race. So we'll see. Lots mm. to talk about. So now we're going to preview the Japan Cup? Uh, actually, <laughs> not the Japan Cup, but uh, Saitama Criterium. Oh, oh serious? Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, actually, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about, uh, in our next, uh, next transition, we're going to talk about TUEs. Well, if you've been hiding under a rock, uh, you wouldn't know the cycling's been embroiled in... Uh, I hesitate to even call it a, a, a doping problem because as far as I'm concerned, there is no doping. But let's say we've been involved, we've been embroiled in an ethical discussion uh, about grey areas uh, surrounding Bradley Wiggins and a particular substance to cure, to, to, to help him with his asthma, etc. Um, I don't want to go on too much about this because mm. I hate talking about this topic because really it's just a giant, you go around in a circle, mm. you know. Mm. Um, but I think in this case it's, it's, it's clearly legal, but it is a grey area. It's just how, how far do you go? Got any thoughts on that? Um, well, I think that for anyone who's interested in this topic, um, you should read the David Miller article in the New York Times, was it? and where he calls it legalized doping and um, describes situations in the past where he um, got a therapeutic use exemption and used that to um, to illegally enhance his performance. Um, 
which you know would have been fine even if he was caught he would have said oh, okay well i've got this i've got this um note from my doctor that um gives me you know the pass off and plus i would get a much better performance out of myself at the races so haven't he- we learned anything really haven't we learned like 99 it came up you know there was a retrospective tue we knew it was going to cause a problem had had that actually not been applied then armstrong rain might never have happened yeah didn't we learn anything you know, there was a cortisone TUE after stage two. Yeah. And otherwise he was positive. And yeah. the doctors doctored it to such a point where it was, it should never have gone on. Yeah. It should have been stopped there and then. The UCI should have paid attention to TUEs 17 years ago. Yeah. And now all of a sudden because of a hacking, we're sort of talking about it as though it's this whole new, it's not a revelation. No. Anyone who knows sport knows that TUEs have been abused for years. But it's tied up into something else as well. So I think, you know. It's funny, isn't it? We've got these two work experience kids in the corner of the studio while we're (laughs) talking. They're at a football school up on the Central Coast. And so they're they're studying football, which is pretty great. I I wish there was a cycling school. There is one in the Basque Country, but it's a university. But we, just before we went on air, we asked them about, you know, what references have been made to doping. And they're learning about their craft, what they hope will be their trade. And uh, I said to them, what do we know about, what do you guys know about doping? And they just uh, raised their eyebrows, what are you talking about? No reference to it. And I'm sure that most discussion about football doesn't come to reference TUEs, cortisone use, uh, anything like that. When, when you're watching the rugby league, there's basically almost admiration for these guys who are brave enough to have a needle because they want to have, you know, <laughs> like seriously... The cycling's the only one that basically does it to itself time and time, time and, and time, time again. And time again. Yep. And I don't know. We're, we're talking about it. Last week we agreed we wouldn't talk about no, it. No, no. But I, I just thought, well, because it's kind of run on a little bit and, you know, Brailsford's... These guys are being... In, they're being trapped with their own words. Uh, there's a lot of pedantry involved. I know some people will argue that point. Um, I think a lot of it's tied up in, in, uh, in a... a anti-team sky kind of mindset Mm -hmm. you know uh you're so good you must be doing so you have to be doing something wrong so here it is this is the thing that you're doing wrong but the thing that they're doing wrong is entirely legal is exploiting an opportunity an opportunity um but of course they're 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 being trapped to the fact that you know they have this this ethical stance and here it is here they are pushing it right to the limit I mean, this this is kind of crazy, and and this is where, in some ways, it's optimistic because this is where cycling is now, is we're now arguing gray area mm. points mm. and ethical gray area points, uh, entirely debatable points, but still, this is where we are. We're not actually talking anymore about you know whether guys are on going full gas on EPO and mm. or blood doping or anything else. So we've we've come this to this to this point. The point also should be made too. You know, it's it's Wiggins is of, of a certain generation, and that was then. And I would say that a lot of the younger guys, the ones who are around 25, 10 years younger than him, these are not considerations. And from what I, from what I understand, uh, the use of TUEs amongst most of the teams has dramatically declined anyway. They hardly apply for TUEs anymore, even though it does occur. Um, so, you know... The climate has changed significantly since since 2011, even. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think we should probably drill down into that grey area a bit more um, for this discussion. Um, is it, it should it be allowed um, that you get um, external help in the form of a TUE, which then allows you to race? So we've seen. I mean, there's been quite legitimate concerns raised about 
um, Bradley Wiggins' asthma and his allergies. Um, though Froome, I saw a quote from Chris Froome who said, oh, I didn't know that Brad, Bradley Wiggins had allergies. And I've seen quite some other writers who talk about how he's always stuffed up with um, various um, nasal problems, um, which, you know, make it hard for him to breathe. So I'm not entirely sure who to follow there. Um, but should should writers be allowed to um, get, you know, essentially drugged help to, to race? Is that... Mm. Is that something that we should do? Uh, but you know, where do you stop? Where, but where do you stop with this? Okay, so yeah. Animators retires last week, mm-hmm. or yeah, but she retires last week, and um, and she said that uh, over the course of preparation for the Olympics, she had six cortisone injections in her back. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, read Agassiz's book, you know, he made a point of it as well. He's got spondylolisthesis and where it's sort of like a floating vertebrae and that caused him all sorts of angst. So the doctors just said, let's just bang some cortisone in. And he yeah. said that when he did, he was fine. You know, like, so it's not exclusive to cycle. No. It's just, a, and I don't know, you know, Buddy Franklin hurt his foot early in the in the grand final this year and he went off into the locker room a few times. I don't think they were in there motivating <laughs> Like I'm Sorry. not to say that I don't know yeah, yeah, what yeah. I don't know yeah. what went on. We don't know what went on, and I, I don't. I'm not saying I don't want to talk about doping. I'm happy to talk about doping, but I also sort of think that we need to. We also need to talk about the good. The good. The good. Yes, that's right. I don't know what I'm saying. No, no, no. I get that, and this is one of the reasons why we tried we tried to avoid this topic. So, but anyway, those are a few thoughts from us on uh, on the whole TUE thing, and realistically, I see it. Uh, it's a storm, um, maybe in something that's a little bit bigger than a teacup, but but the problem still is, is that is yeah. that, that the the cortisone that was being used and referenced in the Wiggins example is that it is enormously powerful. So it's not like we're just saying, look, he took some tramadol or he did, took a panadol or he he had a nasal spray. This was the nuclear option. This was the full gas. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was uh, Wiggins' first tour as a GC rider was 2009. I don't think he had a TUE for 2009. And I landed, I, I got off the plane for that uh, race in Paris and I had a transfer to get to Nice. So I got off at Charles de Gaulle. By the time I got to Orly, the other airport in Paris, I was completely and utterly clogged, full gas clogged. And it is relevant, I'm not just saying that because I was in France, but the pollen that year was extremely rich, 2009. I got By the time I got to Monaco, I couldn't hear a thing. My ears were gone. Everything happened. It took me a week, and by the end of the week, I went to the tour medical and said, I, look, I, I'm in a real bad state. I need some help as a journalist. And they gave me cortisone as a tablet. They didn't inject, inject it into my intramuscular. But, uh, and, and it eventually cleared things up. Anyway, every, but the point is everyone eventually can take cortisone yes. to solve a problem. And, and hay fever and asthma and all of those things are, uh, can really hinder... Just everyday living. Yes. I, I, it's I'll, I'll testify. Uh, so, it's, you know, if Froome didn't know that Wiggins had asthma, well, we know they weren't super close friends. But, uh, yeah. I don't know, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I don't have the answer. So that's that's but how the, we're... Uh, I, I solved my problem with allergies yes. with a nasal spray. So that's how we're ending this discussion. You were doped I while you were covering the 2009 Tour de France um, ride. I, I must say, I didn't notice any performance enhancement. Um. <laughs> okay. Still really out. We'll, we'll, uh, okay. <laughs> we'll, end, we'll end that now. And uh, yeah. we'll be back in just, uh, just a jiffy.
as uh, Rob referenced uh, before, um, this will be our last pod for the uh, for 2016. So before we head into hibernation for the rest of the year, do you guys have any takeaways? Last minute takeaways, something that defined 2016. Oh, oh you, your hands up already. Before we go to takeaway, can I just throw out a little mention? Yes. Because I think you put it on your website yesterday, but I bumped into someone who used to work with Gary West. Gary West oh, is yes. in retirement, mm. and uh, I found out this morning that he has MND. Uh, mate, my thoughts go out to Gary, and, and I if, when I say MND, I almost go to tears. A friend of mine died from it a couple of years ago. I saw what happened to him. It is just awful. It's 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 horrendous. If you see the ice bucket challenge and all of those things, and just think it's just some sort of novelty act. It's it's not. It's to try and raise awareness and funds to try and beat this thing. Gary, uh, it's going to be a tough couple of months, but we're all behind you. We hope that your retirement uh, is fulfilling and that you don't go the way that my mate went, but it was, it was terrible. So that's just something that I learned about earlier today, so I just wanted to bring it up. Yep. Gary was the sprint coach for Australian team for Australian many, team. many years. Yes, that's right. Yep. Um, Jamie, any last-minute thoughts? Last minute? Um, well, you were asking earlier for takeaways in the entire season, and for me the image of the season will be Chris Froome run, running up the mountain in the Tour de France. Um, that is an image that will never die, I don't think, and sort of encapsulates the beauty and the the ridiculous of cycling <laughs> and partially why we have this love-hate relationship with it which we explore on this podcast quite often so uh, I think that's a moment that will stick with me for a long time. Take-homes for the year I, I talked about the it seems old but it's not because it's always relevant uh, at the end in this magazine that's on sale, we have Chris Froome on the front running up the Mont Ventoux, but inside I, I picked a highlight moment and it was for me walking up the Champs-Élysées at the very end of the Tour de France and, and acknowledging the support that uh, everyone got from the gendarmerie on what was pretty much a, not a sombre tour, but de definitely a security-affected tour. And I'm so thrilled that sport could go on in a country which had been so ravaged by terrorism and uh, even during the tour affected by sort of incomprehensible actions of others. And I think that sport, while we can get frustrated and irritated by it, I think it brings a lot of people together. And, I, and my take home is that uh, we're still riding our bikes and for all the frustration that we get from it, we still love riding our, uh, love cycling for the strange reasons that we do. And uh, I'm looking forward to a summer of cycling that awaits. Looking forward to going riding with my kids and looking forward to some uh, some solitude on the home trainer and looking forward to some discussions that will inevitably arise at Tour Down Under and uh, Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race and all other events that turn up. Uh, looking forward to the Nationals. I'm looking forward to a whole lot of good things that are going to come from a, a sport that continues to prosper despite the adversities. There, that's me for the day. And, and Phil, what are you looking for? And my last word will yeah. be... Uh, Entertainment. Peter Sagan. For me, he's the guy who saved 2016 as a spectacle. Mm. Um, every race that he entered was fun and entertaining. And I think more than anything else, uh, you know, this is what these guys get paid for. I mean, I know it's a job and it's hard work, but Peter makes it look easy and he does it in his, with, his own, uh, with his own panache, his own kind of Slovakian panache, whatever that is. But it works. And everyone, he's, he's gold. He's money in the bank. And uh, judging by feedback online, et cetera, whenever we do stuff on, on Peter and on Facebook or Twitter, there's always a huge reaction. Universally loved. Um, I think we'll end on, on that note. A little bit of love for Peter Sagan and from Peter Sagan because he mm. races in the way that suggests that he loves the sport. 
Hmm. Another rainbow jersey, and uh, I'm sure he'll fly it in fine style. Yes, that's correct. Okay, that's it from us, our final podcast for 2016. But we'll be back in 2017 for, as Rob says, the Australian Summer of Cycling. Bye-bye.